So Eric, when was the last time you were on an airplane? February 19th, 2020. And to be clear, it's now the end of summer. So when do you think you might get on one again? I honestly don't know, Catherine. Me neither, which feels very, very weird. As travel journalists, we spend an inordinate amount of time each year traveling, usually to international destinations. So what does a travel journalist do when the world's on lockdown due to a pandemic? We call up experts to discuss how and if we can get back on the road safely again and what COVID means for the future of travel. Welcome to Conscious Traveler. We're your hosts, Eric and Catherine, and we're excited to dive into the world of meaningful, mind-opening travel with you. With our stories and interviews, we hope to make it easier for you to indulge your curiosity and seek out rare experiences wherever you go next. For this topic in particular, we thought there would be no one better to speak with than a good friend of mine from college, Dr. Nabarun Dasgupta, NAB for short, who is an epidemiologist. In case you're not familiar, an epidemiologist is kind of like a disease detective. His job is basically to study and attempt to control the spread of infectious disease in humans. NAB is based at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill's Injury Prevention and Research Center. He's been studying infectious diseases and addiction for nearly 20 years. He's advised the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the World Health Organization, as well as local and state health authorities. NAB, we felt, would be an incredible resource to talk to about COVID, and he was. He is used to traveling often, and he understands way better than us how all of this works. For a little context, when we called up NAB, it was early summer and Europe was on the verge of announcing its ban on American visitors. He was lucky enough to be on Bald Head Island off the North Carolina coast, so please pardon the non-studio sound quality. How are you doing today, NAB? I'm great, Eric. Thanks for having me. What an honor. <laughs> well, I'm glad you think so. Where are we calling you today? You are catching me on Bald Head Island off the coast of North Carolina. Ooh. Kind of a secret place. But let's start with why you chose to actually go there right now. I live in North Carolina, and we had originally planned a two-week trip to Colorado to go to national parks and camp. And as the time came closer and the COVID issues were not resolving in the quickest way that they could have, we called the parks and basically asked them and people we knew about whether they wanted visitors. And they basically said, no, please stay away. So we thought, okay, well, we've got to stay within our state. And we're lucky to have amazing parks and beaches here. But I think every state has beautiful spots that are places that we overlook because we're so enchanted by the bigger destinations that we see in our Instagram feeds. So it was great to be on this little island. And for the first few days here, it's been kind of a blissful place to not think about COVID. But just this evening, right before I called in to you guys, we got a text saying that there is a case now on the island at one of the social clubs. So you feel like you're getting away, but then suddenly the virus intrudes, even on these remote little islands. That's not what you want to hear at this point. So in your job, can you tell us how much you travel typically? In my job before COVID, I was traveling probably a couple of times a month, mostly to conferences, mostly to large cities. Some of those conferences would have, you know, more than 10,000 people, the biggest ones, but most of them were a few thousand people at a time. Those conferences are all on hold and I don't get to travel for work anymore. And the trips that were canceled this year include trips to Berlin, to, I think there was one to Canada that got canceled. So it's definitely a change in the way we do science. 
Uh, it's unfortunate, but I don't miss going to D.C. like every other week, though, for working with federal government contracts. I can imagine. But I guess it's safe to say that your job as an epidemiologist pre-pandemic is quite different from your job as an epidemiologist now in a pandemic. It is in some ways, definitely. It feels like I'm working in isolation a bit more, which kind of gets lonely, but I've been tracking pandemics and outbreaks for my entire career. So in a lot of ways, this is what I've trained to do. And a lot of the reactions are almost like muscle memory, like, okay, you know, these are the pieces of theory that you have to apply to come up with interventions or whatnot. And, you know, it's the job. It is and it isn't, though, Ned. I think one of the things, one of the other words that seems to have come up a lot lately is unprecedented. There's so much about Mm -hmm. this particular outbreak that is unprecedented, including the fact that Mm -hmm. global travel literally shut down almost altogether. Sure, there were cargo flights. Sure, there were a couple of people flying here and there. Yes, we're hearing about some flights to and from the U.S. and China picking up again. But... The fact of the matter is most of us are going to be staying put within our own countries for the foreseeable future. And part of me wonders, you know, is that something you ever conceived of before this particular illness started cropping up? I will go so far as to say absolutely not. We had not thought of global travel coming to this kind of screeching halt. I mean, we would war game pandemic scenarios, you know, frequently at work. And we would think about the range of reasonable responses that societies would have to different kinds of outbreaks. And never in those scenarios did this kind of halt and sustained halt in travel ever come up. So it's definitely the response. You're right. has been unprecedented. The response has been way more intensive and intrusive than what we had even conceived as would have been societally acceptable when we were thinking about interventions a few months ago. I mean, a lot of that is because of the sort of failure to respond of so many places, right? I can imagine in the scenarios that you all plan for, this wasn't even ever, ever, ever conceived of. Yeah, I think that the pandemic scenarios get, when you're thinking of them ahead of time, get so big so quickly and so complex, it's really hard to predict them. And I think the responses have been really patchwork and inconsistent, allowing for pockets of cases to really, you know, entrench themselves before they could have been stamped out. And I think that level of complexity that gets added by all this, like all these different places having so many different kind of failures of response creates a scenario of uncertainty where travel just becomes really a lot more dangerous feeling. Like if everybody was taking the same precautions everywhere, then you would have a somewhat more uniform risk as you are traveling from place to place. But given the way things have unfolded and the hotspots, it's not uniform. So travel is really, really hard right now. Picking up on that, Nab, what destinations do you feel might be more impacted in the long term by this pandemic? And can we just consider them off limits for the time being? Or do you think there will be ways to travel to some of them responsibly? One thing that stuck in my mind was that the Australian tourism minister just said they don't envision opening their borders until the end of 2020 at the earliest and possibly through 2021, which seems crazy that you won't be able to visit Australia for another year and a half, maybe. Yeah, it's a tough one, man. I think any place where you used to be able to enjoy people watching is going to feel like a no-go zone. And that could be plazas in Spain, or it could be crowded markets in Southeast Asia, and it's just not going to feel right. 
So I think those are the places that are going to take the most to rebound. I think there's probably a few dozen destinations internationally, like Machu Picchu, maybe Venice, you know, the huge, huge highlight ones where the draw is so strong that people will risk their lives to visit. But I think a lot of the, you know, any place where people congregated, where the excitement of the place was really magnified by the number of people on the ground. Those are the places that are going to have the hardest time coming back. And the case of Australia is really interesting because some of the most spectacular sites in Australia are Aboriginal sites. And the early data are suggesting that people of Aboriginal extraction have higher rates of COVID mortality after getting infected. So I think there's levels of responsibility kind of at those sites that are worth keeping in mind. And it's not just a matter of like looking at some rocks, but really paying attention to the people who take care of those places as well. When you mention responsibility, I'm thinking of the fact that the EU is also currently deciding whether they're going to allow Americans into Europe this summer. I just imagine the heaps and heaps of people crowding in to throw coins in the Trevi Fountain or to see the sunset on Santorini. And exactly what you're saying is those things aren't going to be happening. But, you know, at the same time as they might be denying Americans, they would potentially be allowing tourists from China and from Vietnam and Cuba and even Uganda, places that have fared a little bit better. But do you think that places like the EU or other destinations are really doing right by their citizens to ban the rest of us from coming? Do you think that's what really needs to happen in order to get through this? This is a really complex question. And putting aside like the geopolitical intricacies of this, uh, I think from a more pure disease transmission standpoint, I think those stances are really logical and rational at this point. The U.S., in terms of our the way that the outbreak is playing out here, is way, way, way worse than any other country by a long shot. And the failure to control COVID in the United States is the stuff of legends already. I mean, it's, the other countries have had a hard time and responded, and there's questions about data and how much is getting reported. There's a lot of caveats in there. But in terms of like the order of magnitude of the problem, it's way worse in the U.S. than it is in almost any other country right now other than Brazil. I think India and Russia are coming in you know, close after that in the top tier. So what we're seeing in the EU is also what is starting to happen on the state level within the United States, right? There's, it's not a complete ban, but Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey just had a rule issued where if you're coming from states with uncontrolled outbreaks within the United States, you have to quarantine for 14 days, just like Florida did for incoming folks from New York. And that kind of response is totally rational and is the kind of outbreak crisis control that you would see happening for other diseases. So it doesn't surprise me it's happening. I'm just surprised it took this long for it to happen, to be honest. So sticking with COVID briefly, but then also perhaps expanding our conversation to health concerns in general when planning travel, Nab, what are some of the resources you look to when researching a destination and the possible health risks associated with traveling there? What can, you know, your average traveler do to find out whether it's actually safe to go somewhere? I go to a travel doctor before I head anywhere, very exotic to see if I'm all up on my inoculations or if I need to take any sort of medications with me. But other than that, what sorts of uh, places can people look for information? Great question. So you're starting at exactly the right spot, Eric. Getting your vaccines is 
super important. And there's some vaccines that are more important than others, depending on where you're going. Definitely a fundamental piece of staying safe. I think there's also just knowing what the other COVID isn't displacing all the GI and stomach bugs and all the other issues that you could be getting in terms of like what specific resources I would look at. One is healthmap.org is a Harvard Medical School's infectious disease surveillance platform where they translate everything into English, but also break it down into digest. And I always look at that to see if there is some outbreaks that are happening. I always try to find out if it's going to be the rainy season or not, because I'd rather not be stuck in an overwater bungalow during the rainy season, even though that has happened despite the best plans. There's also the National Health Service in the UK actually does a really good job, I think, in providing very specific travel information, especially to countries where there's a lot of immigrants to England. So, for example, if you look at, and this, this might have changed since I looked at uh, last year, but the U.S. government, the CDC's travel website, kind of treats all country, like a country as one risk place, whereas the NHS treats each of the different regions of the country separately. So if you're going to a country like India, which has many different climates, and you're concerned about specific infections, Zika maybe, or malaria, then you could get more granular information in English readily available through the NHS travel website. So that's the one place that I always look if I'm if I look at the US one and feel a little bit unsatisfied. That sounds like a great resource. And Zika, it's like, who even cares about Zika now? <laughs> <laughs> I forgot all about it. What's know, it been right? doing all this time? <laughs> like, oh, right. That was a big concern for a while, but not quite to where we are now. So speaking of, do you feel that traveling now, you know, airplanes, cruise ships, all of that, how much riskier has that just gotten in the last four or five months versus a year or two ago? And then within that, what do you see as the most risky parts of actually traveling? Is it being on a plane? Is it being in an airport? Is it getting in a taxi? Is it going to a restaurant somewhere you are unfamiliar with? What are the biggest riskiest moments of traveling and the biggest possibility for picking up a pathogen? So I think at the risk of losing all my statuses on all the airlines, I think the plane and airport experience are really kind of at the heart of what feels the most dangerous. One other mm-hmm. epidemiologist I spoke to called the bathrooms on airplanes bioweapons. <laughs> he said they were that dirty. <laughs> they, are, they are. When we started traveling with my son, he was less than a year old, and we would just handy wipe and bleach wipe every surface down just out of precaution because we were going places for just a couple of days and didn't want to deal with him being sick. But once we started doing that and you saw the kind of gunk that came off of seat back trays and window shades and seat belts, and it was just like, ooh, and this is like way before COVID. So yeah, man, <laughs> pretty gross. Do you think that the airlines have, since COVID, really amped up their cleaning methods as they claim to be? Do you think that's making a difference or not so much? It can't hurt. At the end of the day, I mean, if you think about every interaction that you have from the moment you leave your front door to the moment you get to your destination, Airbnb or hotel or whatever, every one of those interactions has a risk. And if you have to travel, if you have, you know, sick parents you need to take care of, if you have a job that is just making you do it, if you've got points that you just can't lose or whatever it is, you have to take every one of those steps into consideration. You know, much like 
in a dance or in a golf swing, you're looking at every muscle movement and really thinking it through. You have to kind of really work on it through in that detail. And it's exhausting to make that many risk assessments over a 12-hour travel period. You could be facing a dozen different scenarios and a dozen different risks, right? The cab, the airport, the airport bathroom, the hotel, check-in. There's all these pieces and each one of those scenarios is different. So is there one in particular? There's a risk with each one of them. And it's kind of like a weak link problem. It's like you screw up with your carefully planned thing with one of them. You might as well have exposed yourself the whole time if you get sick. So I think it's just exhausting. Everyone just needs to watch Naomi Campbell's plane cleaning Mm -hmm. (laughs) routine before they hop on a plane. But this is something we were talking about where Catherine was in Nairobi for a couple months when her sister was having her nephew and had to get back in the middle of all this. First, she had to get to Kenya in the middle of all this, and then she had to get back to the United States and all of this. And we talked about just all the steps in the process from getting tested on the ground to figuring mm-hmm. out what was going on at the airport and on the plane, having an overnight in London. Like Catherine, it sounded exhausting to me. How was that for you? Oh, it was completely exhausting and stressful and anxiety-ridden and I couldn't have expected what it would feel like. And the whole time I just felt suspicious, which is not a feeling I feel while traveling generally. You know, I was wondering, is that person sick? Is that person sick? Did they get sneezed on? Are they going to touch me? Are they going to come too close? What germs are here? There's just so many questions running through your head. It doesn't make it very fun. Well, the other thing, too, that we wanted to talk to you about, Nab, and it's something you brought up saying that the first cases of COVID had reached Bald Head Island. But COVID is one thing, but it also is a factor to consider with any number of diseases and any number of destinations, is that you really have to consider the health risk that you, even thinking you're doing your best, are bringing to a destination, especially if you're going to some out-of-the-way places where you want to see these beautiful natural wonders or experience a new culture. But if you're going somewhere remote, chances are they don't have the medical facilities to handle something serious that comes up for you, let alone the rest of the people that live Mm -hmm. there all the time. So what are some of the things that people need to keep in mind before just sort of hopping on a plane and heading to the next place? Eric, I think you summed it up really well. I think it's basically don't be a jerk. And, you know, there's, if you're going (laughs) to a small place where there's only six hospital beds in that whole county or town or province, then better to leave those beds for other people right now. And that's always been a consideration of how we travel, with my family at least, where if you're going to get sick, how much of a burden am I going to be on the host? And if there are states in the U.S. where hospital ICUs are at 90% or even 80% capacity, well, maybe we should just let those places keep those beds open for the locals. I think that's one half of it. I think the other part of it, there are bioprotected zones like in Chile and New Zealand where they do a lot with biosecurity, right? And that means not bringing in contaminated foods and very strict rules about that. And that same mentality, I think, really applies to how we look at these infections as well. So I don't think any of us are going to New Zealand anytime soon because they've locked down their borders for a long time and appear to want to continue doing so. But even places that don't lock that down, I think it's our responsibility to really understand whether we'll be contributing positively to their economy or negatively to their hospital scene. Definitely. I know this is an impossible question to answer, but sort of putting on a forecasting hat for a moment, based on what you know about the novel coronavirus at this point, do you predict this 
would be gone by the fall or winter? Do you expect that there would probably be another wave? And regardless, how do you feel like we as travelers and people who want to go experience the world should sort of prepare for this? And how can we do this better next time? So I think the fundamental outlook is going to be one of uncertainty. And the best forecasting models that we've seen so far predict not only that there's likely going to be a serious resurgence in the fall, but there's going to be a cycling of the outbreak increasing and then dissipating as control measures are put into place. Then those control measures get eased up and then the virus comes back. And I think it's not even a question of first wave, second wave. This is going to be a wavy cyclical pattern for the next year, year and a half at some level. So there's only places now that feel like they're moving on to the second wave. And then one state over might be still in the middle of the first wave. And it's going to be really hard to keep track of who's in which wave. And what it's going to really look like on a practical level is is just a lot of uncertainty. You know, am I going to be required to quarantine for 14 days before I'm allowed to leave the hotel when I get to this destination? And the answer is maybe. If you leave tomorrow, maybe not. And so I think if you want to enjoy the vacations, doing things that reduce that uncertainty really helps. And if that means an RV, if that means bringing your own groceries to an Airbnb instead of knowing whether the restaurants are going to have crazy restricted rules, just whatever you can to reduce uncertainty, I think is going to be the best way for travel for the foreseeable future. Mm. I guess we can all just pretend we're in survival mode, which we really are. (laughs) Prepare as much as possible. And you know, what everyone keeps waiting for and talking about and hoping for is the vaccine. I don't know how much you feel that will be the solution. But I'm curious, too, from a global standpoint of how do you even go about rolling out a vaccine to all of the people in the world in all these countries that are hard to reach, where people don't have money? That just, to me, has so many other questions of logistics around it. So what's your thought about the the question of a vaccine and how much that will be this savior sort of solution? You make a really good point, Catherine. And I don't have a Perfect answer. I think a lot of it's going to depend on how safe the vaccine is, whether it needs to be kept cold while it's transported. Can the laws be changed ahead of time so that it can be administered anywhere by people without having to have a full medical degree. There's a lot of things that can be done structurally to kind of clear the path for when this vaccine becomes available, which I don't see really happening right now yet. I think there's a lot of emphasis on the technical solution, like the actual biochemistry and the funding and the pharmaceutical gains that are being played. But I think at the end of the day, I think what you're hinting at from your travel experience, I assume, is really spot on that there's a lot of human elements to the vaccine, which are not being addressed and is going to make all the difference about which places get it or not and whether people are forced to get it, even if they're not comfortable getting it. So I think there's a lot to be talked about and to lay the groundwork. Oof, lots of issues. And speaking of some of the human issues to talk about, if we do want to travel, I'm planning on taking a road trip. I think I mentioned to you it's my birthday coming up and I would like to celebrate it somewhere with a view of the ocean. That what are some of the supplies that everyone should bring with them no matter how they're traveling? Me, I'm stocking up on some sanitizing wipes, which I will say that I always bring with me anyway, and some disinfectant hand solution. I'll be packing some masks with me. But what should be in every traveler's bag for now? and going forward? 
I mean, if you're getting Clorox wipes, dude, please send me some because I haven't been able to get any. In like My parents have made friends <laughs> with someone at their local Costco who just holds them back for anyone willing to show up at 7 a.m., which my dad is apparently. So there wow. you go. <laughs> Impressive. Well, for your birthday, I think the number one thing you should be bringing with you is probably champagne. It's got alcohol, right? <laughs> yeah, there we go. Although there's been some hand sanitizers that got recalled for having methanol in it. So instead of ethanol, so ethanol is the kind of alcohol that kills these germs, which is also the kind of alcohol that's in the beverages we drink. Methanol is the stuff that's in moonshine that makes you go blind and also gives you skin poisoning. Something else to worry about. <laughs> I know. So some of the hand sanitizers, the FDA's website has all that information, but there's definitely some unscrupulous or inexperienced hand sanitizers being put out there. So it just pays to, pays to be careful with that stuff too. So just from being on a trip right now, I'm staying at a rental cottage. And so I was really glad that I brought my own sponges to wipe down the surface. It's not usually something I throw in my bag, but I felt like a little bit. That's really interesting. You bring your own biome with you, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't really like touching those gross sponges that are next to the sink anyways, but in these times, it's, it's just like more unsettling. Some rubber gloves, if you've been grocery shopping with rubber gloves, those are good to have. Just general hygiene stuff makes sense. The hand sanitizers are great. But one important thing, and you'll see this if you look very carefully between the lines on the CDC website, but they are really designed to work in hospital settings where people are washing their hands regularly. So a hand sanitizer gel will be effective in killing germs instead of washing hands about three times in a row in a hospital setting. So if you're using it more than three times in a row instead of washing hands, the effectiveness is dropping very quickly. And if you've been out like on a horse trail and there's dirt in your in the cracks of your hands, which is very natural, the hand sanitizer isn't going to do much for you. You really need soap and water. So I carry a handkerchief and soap sheets with me when I travel all the time. I use those. And if the water seems suspect, I'll use hand sanitizer after I use soap and water. But for the most part, like soap and water is your best friend other than your mask at this point. I prefer mine in an outdoor shower at an island resort. But if I've just got to use a random <laughs> sink, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> That's right. Well, that was super helpful, Nab. I hope that everyone goes and visits your Instagram, which is at D, because you've got these amazing aerial photos. They make me want to be on an airplane again, honestly. And I hope that you get to be on one soon whenever you want, but safely above all. Thanks, Eric. That's a good motivation for me to release my back catalog of, <laughs> of those images which I've been holding on to. Thank you so much, Nab. Thank you, Catherine. Nab gave us a lot to think about. So we hope if any of you are traveling this fall or winter that you'll consider taking his advice to heart. We certainly will be. And depending on how long COVID remains an issue, we might just check in with him again. We'd like to give special thanks to Matthew Carpenter who composed our music. Thanks so much for listening. If our message resonates with you, please spread the word by letting your friends and fellow travelers know about this podcast. For more information, check out our website, ConsciousTravelerPod.com, and follow us on Instagram at ConsciousTravelerPod. Ciao!